This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 7.36 a.m. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana, Shaoning and Philip. Now in half an hour, we have The Breakfast Grill. Who is in the hot seat today, Phil? In the hot seat is Kelly Kam. He is the CEO of Alliance Bank, took over the role September 2022. He joins at a very interesting time uh, as inflation pressures rise and economic activity slows. Malaysian banks will likely see a much more challenging 2023. So we ask him, how is he going to navigate these challenges and pick particularly talk about his new strategy, Accelerate 8 2027. What does Accelerate 8 2027 mean and what does it mean for the bank in five years' time? Are you going to ask him about share price because we're all about the money here on the morning run, right? Of course. Yeah, where is it heading, up or down? Well, it's not performed as well as its other peers. I think if you look at M Bank and Afin Bank, uh, so I think that's the question to ask, you know, when will shareholders expect a much better performance? All right, stay tuned to that conversation after the 8 a.m news bulletin. For now, though, we're turning our attention over to the oil and gas sector. In recent years, geopolitical tensions and net zero emission targets have driven a rapid acceleration in the global energy transition from fossil fuel, pushing the ONG industry to maturity with companies facing increasing asset retirement obligations as stipulated in contracts or required by legislation. So with that, as the end of service life approaches for these facilities, do you sell, abandon, recycle, or how else would you want to dispose of these assets? So these actions for retirement are crucial as oil and gas majors commit to their emission reduction targets. ExxonMobil, for example, one of the biggest contributors to global greenhouse gas emissions in the world, has ambitions to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions for operated assets by 2050, while Shell aims to fully offset carbon emissions from its own ONG production and the energy it uses by the middle of this century. But what's the cost and how complicated is it to decommission oil and gas assets? That's the question we're asking this morning. And for some answers to this, we speak to William Atwell, Associate Director at Sustainable Fitch. William, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, is the industry ready for decommissioning of oil and why is it so important? It really differs across different regions and is largely driven by what regulatory requirements they face in different jurisdictions. So in the North Sea, for instance, in, in Europe or in the Gulf of Mexico, there's already um, quite a mature and established decommissioning industry. Uh, so that is in a strong position to, to ramp up um, as, as we go forward. Um, in other parts of the world, uh, many jurisdictions and emerging markets, for instance, are just seeing their first decommissioning projects take off. So in that, in those places, it's it's really more in its infancy. Um, and I suppose the question going forward is is whether they can ramp up to the scale necessary in the coming decades. Can you give us an idea of how complex and what is the cost involved in this process of decommissioning? So in terms of the actual process, it's a, a highly complex and costly process, especially when you're talking about offshore installations. Uh, in terms of the specific costs, if you're looking at a, an offshore platform in uh, 60 meters of water or so, uh, we're looking at 10 to 20 million US dollars uh, has been uh, modeled by, by uh, researchers. But of course, it can be much more than that. I mean, these are installations that can go down hundreds of meters, uh, even thousands of meters. So if you can imagine trying to dismantle something that could be, you know, as large as the Eiffel Tower, but attached to the bottom of the ocean, and you're trying to do this out on the open ocean, um, that's obviously going to be a very difficult and costly exercise to run. And it comes with a lot of risk as well. And there have been examples of decommissioning projects um, 
uh, offshore projects that have uh, that have gone awry and, and certainly caused some environmental damage. So then how real is the prospect of underfunded retirement and cleanup costs being borne by governments and taxpayers at the end of the day? So in parts of the world, this was already a problem. So in North America, for instance, there's a big problem of what are called orphan wells, which are essentially, uh, which are onshore wells generally, and uh, they were developed many decades ago. Um, and due to record keeping problems, um, it, we don't know who the owners are, or the owners have long since gone out of business or are bankrupt. So in, there are cases where actually uh, federal state governments are having to pay for the cleanup and decommissioning, the plugging of those sites already. So that's already an issue. Um, the the sort of bigger question, I suppose, going forward, if we're looking decades into the future, is more uh, oil and gas installations need to be decommissioned, for instance, in emerging markets, where perhaps the regulatory environment isn't as developed. There's a bigger question there about whether uh, ultimately it'll fall on governments and taxpayers to have to pay for that decommissioning. And that's certainly a, a concern as we look to the longer term. What about emerging markets that have generally been running budget deficits and have no comprehensive energy security plan? Would this be too much to ask of them? This is a big concern, certainly, when you think about emerging markets that rely, especially those that rely heavily on revenues from commodities like oil and gas. So if we are um, asking them to pick up the bill for cleaning up old oil wells at a time, you know, decades into the future when the industry could already be in decline as a result of the low carbon transition, that does uh, pose some, some very serious fiscal questions as to how they will manage to do that. So in the report, we note how various countries are tightening their regulations in this area. Um, so for instance, making it more explicit in some cases that it's the companies that are responsible for decommissioning and cleanups and will will bear the related costs. So I know Indonesia, for instance, has in recent years tightened its regulations to make it more explicit that uh, it's companies that will need to 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 pay for that decommissioning. Um, so it's been retroactively imposing those obligations in in the contracts with oil companies. With such a large cost of decommissioning, what are the financing options available for this process and are they sufficient? One of the themes we explore in our recent report on this topic at Sustainable Fitch um, is the question of whether green finance has a role to play. So green and sustainable bonds, could they be used to finance this expansion and decommissioning that uh, we expect to be coming down the line in, in, the, in the coming years? So our key finding really is that it's going to be difficult for oil companies themselves to find investors for what are known as use of proceeds bonds because um, typically ESG-focused investors with a strong focus on sustainability um, are likely to already screen out fossil fuel industries um, from their investment portfolios are unlikely to, to want to uh, buy green bonds from, from oil and gas companies. Um, on the other hand, in those cases, as we mentioned earlier, where governments and other public sector bodies are having to foot the bill for cleaner costs, they might find it easier to, to tap into demand for green bonds. Um, so they could, for instance, issue green bonds that have a, a use of proceeds around pollution prevention and control. That's quite an established use of proceeds in, in the green finance arena. So um, we could see investor demand for those uh, sovereign uh, green bonds uh, that could potentially be a source of, of financing for, for these large projects. 
Um, and then sustainability linked debt is another potential avenue. And we've come across at least one example in the US um, of an oil and gas company securing a sustainability linked loan on the basis of a target to increase the number of, of asset retirements. Um, so th- certainly there are there are uh, options, but this is also, also a very new area for green finance. So it, it remains to be seen. Okay, so at the end of an asset's life, I mean, a company has to plug wells, dismantle, remove installations and even restore the surrounding area. So the question is, are there actually standardised regulations in place to ensure a smooth process and eventually that there are no abandoned sites? So they're not standardised across the world. Gulf of Mexico, North America, North Sea in Europe, uh, where typically a lot of these projects are, are older and there's been a, a track record of decommissioning already. Um, so in the North Sea, we have quite strict decommissioning regulations. and uh, But in other parts of the world, they, they're still being being developed. ASEAN in Southeast Asia, uh, there's a, the overarching guidelines are called the ESCOPE decommissioning guidelines, which the countries in the region follow. And then in Malaysia specifically, um, there are various different pieces of legislation that um, oil and gas companies need to comply with. So uh, Petronas uh, typically um, requires that its contracting parties have to comply with uh, specific decommissioning uh, regulations. Um, They need to submit a plan to Petronas, uh, uh, which they uh, then need to implement and submit regular safety and environmental reports. There's a fairly uh, developed regulatory environment uh, in Malaysia, but in many other emerging markets, it's still very much at its early early stages. I'd say one last thing about the regulatory environment. One of the big differences we see in different jurisdictions is the the extent to which the installations offshore need to be entirely removed. So in the North Sea, uh, the structures need to be entirely removed, uh, including all the uh, infrastructure on the seabed. Uh, all has to be taken away. Uh, whereas in uh, some other jurisdictions, including in Southeast Asia, uh, some of those structures can re- remain on the seabed. And we've seen, and that's the case in, in the Gulf of Mexico as well. And we've seen some quite uh, innovative environmental projects uh, that can actually use these seabed structures um, in what are called rigs to reefs initiatives. So actually some of these installations, once they are properly cleaned and uh, made safe, they can actually be quite good environmental habitats for fish and corals and other sea life. So those can be a solution and, and actually that can reduce some of the costs when when the, those kinds of rigs to reefs projects are delivered uh, effectively. William, thank you very much for speaking with us. That was William Atwell, Associate Director at Sustainable Fitch, uh, talking to us about the complexities of decommissioning oil and gas assets, but something that's quite necessary if we're serious in moving over to renewable energy. 7.47 in the morning, we are taking a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss plans to redevelop Subang Airport. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.